0: Majority of this body has said definitively that we are not ceding our constitutional authority to the partisan designs of the speaker. This week, the majority of the Senate stepped forward to make it perfectly clear that this conversation is over.
1: I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. It had become a trope on the show that I start every week by saying this was a big week in impeachment. And this was not that big of a week in impeachment. So I want you to know that when when the need calls for it, I will say that we've been in a bit of a holding pattern and the holding pattern has finally broken. Nancy Pelosi has been unwilling to send the articles of impeachment to the Senate. The Senate has begun threatening to move forward even without them. And so on Friday uh, today, it's the day I'm recording this. Pelosi said she'll bring the articles of impeachment and the resolution sending them forward to a vote in the House early next week that will shape who the managers are. I'm going to talk about all that with Andrew Prokop. But then the, the the big political event and also geopolitical event of the past couple of weeks has been the U.S. assassination of Soleimani, the escalation of hostilities with Iran. Iran had was so far mostly a force show missile launch, uh, missile reprisal. It led to the tragic destruction of a plane carrying almost 200 people. And so I have heard a lot from people who think that Trump's attack on Soleimani has been an effort to distract from impeachment. There's a long history of this kind of concern or belief. It goes back to Clinton. You can see it in the movie, Wag the Dog. And so we also have on, in the B Block, an expert on what going to war means for presidents, um, whether or not that really does create the kind of rally around the flag effect people expect. And so whether or not that kind of theorizing either is what we know has happened in the past, or even would make sense if it were happening now. And I think that's a pretty interesting conversation, so you want to stay tuned for that. But let's begin here with Andrew Prokop. Andrew Prokop, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I was worried going into our conversation that we were still going to be in this limbo of what Speaker Nancy Pelosi was going to do. But just before we sat down, she announced her intention. So what is happening in terms of the House sending impeachment articles to the
0: Senate? So this specific thing, the transmission of the articles of impeachment from the House to the Senate, it was expected to be a kind of pro forma step. But Pelosi back on December 18th, right after the House voted to impeach Trump, said that she wasn't going to do it just yet. But now we are you know, several weeks down the road from this, and she said that the time has come. What she will do specifically is uh, put a resolution on the House floor next week, which will both name the impeachment managers, who will be the prosecutors essentially making the House's case in the Senate, and which will uh, send the articles over to the Senate and allow the trial to begin. And so what are the kinds of
1: decisions they need to make here in the in the resolution? They need to decide on the impeachment managers. But the other thing that has been going on, it seems, is that Pelosi has been trying to get leverage to force McConnell to run a different kind of process, a more open process, a more investigative process with witnesses and other things. And he wants. Is that something she can do through the resolution?
0: No, I don't think so. And I think the um, decision to move forward at this point is essentially an admission that this play has failed because initially what Pelosi said she wanted was uh, for the Senate. She wanted assurance that there would be a fair trial. She wanted more certainty on the Senate's plans on witnesses. And she's also, you know, framed her request in a different way. She said that she just wants to know more about the arena that they will be competing in, uh, specifically like how exactly the Senate trial will be set up, which she said would help her decide how many impeachment managers to name and who they should be. But McConnell didn't budge on any of that. And the key turning point this week was on Tuesday when McConnell made clear that he had locked down the votes of enough Senate Republicans, which is at least 51 in total, to pass his plan for the opening phase of the trial. So he doesn't need any Democratic votes. And he's not making any concessions toward Pelosi. And uh, he, he basically said, we have the votes to move forward. So you can keep holding out if you want, but it's not going to budge us. And then Pelosi was facing a bunch of complaints from Democrats, particularly in the Senate, who wanted a bit more certainty about their schedule. There was a general feeling that the strategy wasn't working, and that um, you know this was a bit of a political stunt, and so she announced finally on Friday that it was time to move on.
1: So I think of Pelosi in general as one of the politicians in Washington who understands her own leverage and the strategies that flow from it best. She almost never loses a vote, which happens a lot to other speakers, uh, and she often is quite good at architecting things so that if she can't win the fight she doesn't have the fight and if she's going to have the fight she can win the fight and this is a very unusual performance for her, in my view uh where it was pretty clear that what leverage she had came from the house controlling the process they could continue calling witnesses subpoenaing people there was a lot of control of the of the public narrative she cut that very fast i mean they ran a very fast process here and then seemed to have cold feet about sending it to the Senate. I sort of don't understand ultimately the considerations that led her to do a fast house process, but a slow send. Do you think looking back that there is an answer to that, that there was some strategy here and it just failed? Or was this just a a situation where they ended up getting over their own skis?
0: I think what happened is that Toward the end of last year, there was a feeling among Pelosi and among House Democrats that they really had to get impeachment over with, that the issue wasn't good for them. They wanted to focus on other things, show that they weren't just about getting Trump. This is particularly aimed at protecting the vulnerable House Democrats in districts that voted for Trump in 2016 um, and giving them some cover. So they did wrap up the process. But then what happened was that all of these House Democrats, almost all of them in districts that voted for Trump, ended up supporting impeachment. And, you know, the die is cast at that point. And then... It seems Pelosi started to think, influenced in part by reportedly John Dean, uh, who was going on CNN, and Larry Tribe, who wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post, that steamrolling ahead to the Senate trial and the acquittal of Trump is actually like that's what Trump wants. Trump wants a very quick acquittal. That's what Republicans want. He wants to get it over with now. And so she... Latched on to the idea that she had this leverage potentially that if she held up things, prevented the speedy trial, uh, then Trump would get very mad, and that maybe there would be some concessions to help move things along and and give the uh, and and allow for the quick trial that Trump clearly wanted. The problem is that instead of making actual concessions. The Republicans closed ranks. They viewed this as kind of a partisan stunt. And they were not really in the mood to make any concessions to Pelosi on this. And while I think it is definitely true that Pelosi is a brilliant legislative strategist, uh, that is also true for Mitch McConnell. And this is currently coming down to uh, the United States Senate, where McConnell and his Republicans had the majority. Let me ask you about McConnell. So he
1: got the votes among Senate Republicans to move forward. But what was striking to me about that is that he got the votes to move forward on an approach to the trial that doesn't settle the fundamental question of whether or not there will be witnesses of how the trial will even be structured. So what does he have the votes for and what is his position on how to manage the actual trial from what we understand?
0: I think this is a really important part of what's happening right now that has been largely missed by a lot of coverage because McConnell's private position uh, that has been pretty widely reported is that he wants no witnesses and he wants as short a trial as possible. But that is not what he got his Republican senators to agree to. Instead, what they agreed to was uh, in McConnell's framing to follow the precedent of the 1999 impeachment trial of Bill Clinton. And the way that was set up, things kicked off with opening arguments from both sides. And then there was a period of questioning in which senators submitted written questions that were read out by the chief justice and then uh, answered by the counsel for both the House prosecutors and uh, the president's defense. And then only then did the Senate decide to vote on a proposal to call witnesses or not. So what this really is is a punt. He is not resolving right now the question of whether to call witnesses. And this is being widely covered as a defeat for Democrats because their demand was that McConnell agree to call several witnesses up front, including John Bolton. So Democrats didn't get what they want, but McConnell didn't get the ideal of what he wanted either, because it seems to me he doesn't have the votes for it at this point. The key Republican senators like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney uh, have— repeatedly said that they are still open to calling witnesses and they want to leave that possibility at least rhetorically open. And it is possible that they will fall in partisan line and and vote to end things without calling any witnesses eventually. But that really isn't set in stone at this point.
1: So one thing that did happen over the past week or two is that this question of witnesses went from an abstract one to a concrete one in which John Bolton, the former national security advisor for Donald Trump, announced that he would testify before the Senate if he was asked to do so or subpoenaed to do so. And that had been a little bit unclear, but he's clearly been a firsthand witness to a lot of what happened here. So now it is, it is known that there is another witness who has relevant information and also a lot of Republican credibility who is interested in testifying and The question now is, do Senate Republicans want to know what he knows or do they not? So it seems to me that it's called the question in a much more difficult way for them.
0: Yeah, no one is exactly sure what exactly Bolton is playing at here or what he hopes to achieve. But it's definitely true that his announcement made it a lot harder for Republicans to justify ending the trial quickly without witnesses, because in the House, the House did actually request Bolton's testimony, and he didn't show up. He said uh, he wanted to see how various lawsuits that were in the courts would play out before determining whether he was in fact obligated to testify. And so there was a bit of um legal shenanigans on both sides going on. And what ended up happening is that the House withdrew their subpoena for another aide, Bolton's deputy, Charles Kupperman. Uh, And as a result of that, the lawsuit that Kupperman had filed, uh, which Bolton was watching closely, was uh, tossed out of court as irrelevant. So there's no pending court process anymore and so Bolton no longer has that as an excuse. But I think what really might be happening here is just that Bolton would prefer to testify to the Senate rather than the Democrat controlled House because he is of course a, a staunch partisan Republican. So In any case, Bolton has now made clear that rather than fighting a subpoena in court, he would just comply with it. That doesn't necessarily mean we'd get the answer to every single question asked of Bolton. Uh, The president could try to assert executive privilege to try to block his answers in some way. It's just not entirely clear how that would play out. But Bolton has made clear he's a willing witness and that makes it a lot harder because as you said, he has very relevant information on this. He had very strong opinions on this. Uh, he called Rudy Giuliani a uh, live grenade. He said that uh, this was a drug deal that uh, Gordon Sondland and Mick Mulvaney were cooking up. Uh, it's It seems like it would be pretty interesting to hear what he had to say. One thing that I wonder
1: about in my own conspiracy theorizing mind is whether or not this is getting built up in a slightly strategic way only to get let down by John Bolton coming in and throwing Rudy Giuliani under the bus and protecting the president. Uh, In recent uh, days, weeks, you've seen uh, Donald Trump retweeting John Bolton about the War Powers Act. Uh, Donald Trump attacked Iran, which is what John Bolton has always wanted him to do, and he killed Soleimani. And so I I do wonder if there's not some way in which Democrats score what seems like a victory of getting at least like just John Bolton to testify only to be very let down when Bolton closes ranks with the Republicans and and cuts their knees out from under them.
0: Yeah, they probably shouldn't put a lot of their hopes in John Bolton to be the guy who saves them and brings down Donald Trump. There are endless theories on what Bolton has been up to throughout this whole thing. Probably the most common is that he's just trying to promote his book. He sold a a big book deal. He's writing a book and um, he's just trying to hype up what he knows to to get attention. But there are other possibilities. The Iran issue has obviously loomed very large and some have – Theorize that maybe Bolton is trying to box Trump in on Iran, and that there's some sort of signaling back and forth. Uh, Bolton wants him to embrace the policy he wants, and then uh, and then he'll he'll cover him when it comes to the impeachment testimony. Or maybe John Bolton really is just motivated by um, a continuing grudge against Donald Trump and and wants revenge on him for the uh, uh, tense way in which Bolton's tenure in the administration ended last year, and and he. He actually will spill his guts. Um, it's very tough to say at this point, but it is entirely possible that Democrats may be putting too much hope in what Bolton will do. Andrew Prokop, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Joining me next is Adam Brinsky. He's a Mitsui professor of political science at MIT. He's the director of the MIT Political Experiments Research Lab. But he literally wrote the book on how war and conflict affects U.S. presidents, affects their approval, plays domestically. It is called In Time of War, Understanding American Public Opinion from World War II to Iraq. And what he has to say, what he has found, it shatters a lot of the conventional wisdom about what it means for a president to go to war and under what conditions that actually leads to a bump in their popularity. Adam Berinsky joins me next. Adam Berinsky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So there's this longtime idea that American presidents start wars to distract from domestic trouble in general, but impeachment very much in particular. This charge, it got thrown at Clinton when he bombed Iraq during his impeachment proceedings. It formed the basis for the movie Wag the Dog. I'm hearing it a lot now applied to Donald Trump and Iran. Is there reason historically to think this is valid, that presidents try to go to war to distract from impeachment or even just domestic conflict?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I think like Everything about the modern day, I think it, it's really hard to say. You know what is new about today, and what is what a long-term pattern. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of work done in political science on rally effects, kind of rally around the flag, and the idea is that presidents, uh, politicians, but presidents more specifically, are able to sort of rally the the nation to the cause. So it's not just about trying to distract people from whatever bad news is on the mind, be it impeachment or bad press. It's the this notion that presidents are able to basically magically bump up their approval ratings by intervening in foreign interventions, foreign wars, foreign military interventions, that this is kind of a, a piece of a toolkit that presidents can draw upon. You mentioned Wag the Dog. I remember teaching political science 97, 98 when, you know, so the Lewinsky matter was really coming to a head uh, and when Wag the Dog came out. And I think that that's kind of where where my students' minds jumped then. And that's where my students' minds jump today. But I think that, you know, if you if you look at the evidence, there just isn't a, a wide base of evidence to to make that claim. Tell me a bit about rally effects, because in the way the logic of this works, It's exactly as you said it, that there
1: is this tool like this, like break glass in case of political emergency, which is launch bombs at someone. And if you do that, you will get a reliable effect that the country will rally around you because politics stops at the water's edge and people get excited when America bombs other countries. And that that will help you then wait ride out whatever your domestic political troubles are. But is the first part of that true? Is it routinely the case that going to war or launching a strike helps the president domestically
2: in the short or the long term? Um, I, I think that there's two things that are really important to consider there, right? So the first is this question of, is this an empirical regularity? Is this something that we see over time? And the second question, and I think I want to spend more time talking about that, is even if it were an empirical regularity, right, is it the case that the use of military force Directly induces the public to rally around the president, or might there some, be something else going on? Uh, so I think on the first case, there's been systematic studies done of rally around the flag effects over time, and there the evidence is somewhat mixed. Um, you know, if you look at uh, you know sort of just the most the most salient cases, so nine eleven of course is something that that jumps to mind. You know, there there was a tremendous rally around. Uh, George W. Bush, right, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent military action in Afghanistan. But, but it feels
1: different for us to get attacked than for us to choose to attack.
2: Right. And so I think that right, if you, that the studies that look at this broader cases of military action, right, have sort of aside from setting aside things like 9-11 or the first Gulf War in, in 91, kind of that these are very salient cases where America kind of has a large scale uh, intervention. Um, but if we look at the broader class of cases, you know the effect sizes are not quite as impressive, right? So you know, if you look at George Bush's presidential approval over time, the thing that jumps out is you know, sort of the rally after nine eleven and it's kind of the mental model that people use when they're thinking about the rally effect so I was thinking when people are talking about this ability to rally today. But you know, if you go further and look at all the p- potential, Military situation. So, thinking about in 1999 when the Clinton administration got involved in the Kosovo uh, intervention, kind of thing that is smaller scale, or thinking about Reagan and Grenada, Reagan and the Beirut bombings in 1983, um, that kind of, if we think about not just these really Really, kind of big cases, but think about all the cases, you know, which is what political scientists do. Uh, you know, it looks like on average there might be a small rally effect, um, but it's not the the sort of the the thing that captures public imagination. It's not a, a wag the dog in the you know sort of the fictional sense, or nine eleven in the real sense.
1: When I think back over. Let's call it the recent history of American armed foreign conflict. And here I'm thinking of the slightly bigger ones, the ones where we've committed troops. In general, it seems to me that whatever the short-term effect is, the long-term effect often turns pretty toxic for the party that launched the conflict. So the Vietnam War was the ultimate debacle for the Democratic Party that led to Lyndon Johnson not running for reelection. The Iraq War, the first one for George H.W. Bush, I think was understood and probably was a political benefit to him, but it had faded by the time he ran for re-election, so he didn't win re-election. The second Iraq War ultimately was a debacle for his son, George W. Bush, um, and certainly cost Republicans the Congress in 2006 and uh, you know certainly contributed to John McCain's defeat in 2008. So this idea that uh, war tends to help the party that launches it— even if there might be some truth to it in the short term, it seems the long-term effects are often quite uh, quite different.
2: Right. I, actually, this gets at the kind of what I want to talk about in the second point about the mechanism. So, you know, I, I study public opinion, political behavior. And whenever I teach it, I say there's basically two facts that you need to know about American public opinion. Uh, the first is that most of the people, most of the time, don't pay attention to politics. And the second is that when they do, they tend to listen to the kinds of political leaders that they've already pledged their allegiance to. right? And so, you know, this is thing about you know work that uh, was done by Phil Converse, John Zoller, especially, you know, thinking about focusing on not what the you know, kind of what the mass public thinks. Because most of the time, they basically don't have an opinion, but they will form an opinion if you ask them a question, and they'll base that on how leaders are talking about it. And so I think that this gets at the the difference between the short-term and the long-term dynamics there. What I find most convincing is work that Richard Brody did back in the early 90s uh, and that was adapted by other scholars as well, but basically saying that the cause of the rally effect is not that the public looks and sees that there's this external event. So a president going to war and that they feel that they need to rally to their country, what they see are the kinds of politicians that they take their cues from rallying to the president, right? So kind of thinking about right after 9-11, um, right there was no dissent in the Democratic party no dissent in the Republican party everyone was on board all the party leaders all politicians with the kind of with the president's plan uh, and then kind of the mass public who in turn doesn't pay a lot of attention to foreign policy doesn't pay attention to what's going on in the world in general when they're asked to form an opinion they're going to look to the people that they take their cues from so these are political leaders. Democrats will listen to Democratic politicians. Republicans will listen to Republican politicians. And if they see that everyone is on board supporting the president, then the mass public will follow suit. Now, over time, as you say, you have breaks in coalitions, right? So in in the case of the 2003 Iraq war, over time, you know, so early on, Democrats were not supportive. Democrats in the mass public were not supportive. But well, you didn't have a lot of Democratic politicians who were giving them cues. Basically, people knew, Democrats knew that they didn't like George W. Bush and that they were never as supportive of war as Republicans were. But over time, that gap increased between Democrats and Republicans after the initial fade of you know, sort of the, the good feelings. And by the time, as you say, we get to 2006, uh, 2006 elections, we had these big gaps in how politicians are talking about the war, how they're talking about these foreign events, and the mass public picks up on those cues.
1: So I wanna call something out here because it seems to me this is a, a subtle but very important reframing of who has agency here. The The general way the rally around the flag effect is constructed or framed is that it, it is something the president controls, right? The president decides whether or not to go to war, and if he decides to do that, then there's gonna be a rally around the flag. And, and what this elite cue theory argues, as far as I understand it, is it this is quite heavily controlled by the opposition party now the opposition party aren't actors who have no political constraints right if there's been a pearl harbor style attack or the president is super popular they may feel in that case that they need to support the war so i mean they're they're bounded by political considerations too but that in a case where they do have agency, which something like the this Iran conflict is, they actually have a lot of control. That the question is not so much what the president does, but what they do and whether or not they sort of give the other side the cue to say, this is not a bipartisan, fully agreed upon consensus American action. This is a divisive partisan action that that we disagree with.
2: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, it's sort of, it trained that sort of in my book, uh, In Time of War, uh, I talk a lot about kind of this elite Q model and placing it against a model that I think is basically a faulty model of public opinion, which basically says that the mass public, you know, sees actions, does a careful cost benefit calculation or even a not so careful cost benefit calculation to decide whether the cost of the war are worth the benefits. Uh, and they they make this evaluation of the precedent. But as you say, the more realistic ways is saying that it's really politicians both in the party of government and in the opposition. And I guess I would, the the one reframing I would say to what you just said is that it also matters in terms of the party supporting the government, right? So kind of thinking back to the Vietnam War, the split initially happened within the Democratic Party where you had conservatives and doves breaking apart. So you need to look at everyone in the coalition there, but the agency there is really, it's all in the politicians. So when we think about, you know, is this going to help Trump or is it going to hurt Trump? Don't look to the mass public, look to the behavior of politicians. You know, are they rallying to the president or as in the case of Democrats, you know, sort of we're questioning immediately the basis of action. So something that that at least implies to me is that
1: If we're in an era of increasing structural polarization, that you would expect that we are going to be in an era where bipartisan agreement about foreign policy actions, conflicts, et cetera, is harder to come by almost no matter the underlying fundamentals of the situation.
2: Uh, So that, that could be the case. So I think that in general, you know, thinking about politics today, I think that there's less give for the ebb and flow of political events to affect outcomes compared to even 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Now, if you look at Trump's approval rating over time, you know it's basically been a flat line for the last couple of years. So I compare that to Bill Clinton's approval over time. Uh, you know, It's a time when there, there were fewer polls, but we still have pretty thick opinion data. And you can see that there were much more ups and downs, more ebbs and flows. But I think what's interesting to think about is... This notion of politics stopping at the water's edge that that you mentioned earlier, in many ways, politics has never stopped at the water's edge. That in my book, I argued that foreign policy is a partisan controversy, just like any other political issue. Right, that it doesn't rise above politics, and there are instances where you can't have interparty agreement. Um, you know, thinking about. Uh, the, the Gulf War in 1991 and the run-up around the 1990 election there, you had a lot more consensus between the parties uh, than you do uh, today about Iran. So I, I I guess that I would say that polarization changes the dynamics, but doesn't necessarily mean that we're never going to see a bipartisan foreign policy again, but it, it comes down to basically are leaders able to make a, agreements, you know? So, um, you know, just thinking now about kind of the the Senate votes on censoring Russia, right? That kind of here you have Democrats and Republicans coming together, uh, charting a course that's different than the Trump administration policy. So, you know, even today it's possible to get bipartisan agreement on foreign policy, but it's possible, but not likely. I very much take the point that increasing
1: stability doesn't mean you'll, you'll never see volatility. But One thing you and I were talking about before the the interview started here was that idea that another prediction from this era might just be increasing stability. And it's always been a striking thing to me, and we've covered it on, on this show around impeachment more broadly, that if you go back and you're just looking at polling averages of Donald Trump, you would not in any way recognize how tumultuous the past couple of years have been, you would not be able to see the effects of almost anything that has happened on his polling. He looks very steady. And I'm sitting here looking at the 538. how unpopular is Donald Trump tracker? And, you know, we're it's Wednesday evening uh, at the time we're talking. There have been some polling, not a huge amount, but some polling that has come out since the uh, start of hostilities with Iran. And almost nothing has happened. I mean, you, again, would know not, would not know anything had been different in American politics if that was all you were looking at. So that way in which um, there just is less room, less undecidedness for world events to play with strikes me as something that is potentially discontinuity when thinking about things like rally around the flag events, at least when we're dealing with these smaller, more optional conflicts.
2: I think it's, that's absolutely right. I, I think that you know, sort of taking, you know, as you said, the day-to-day whiplash in headlines since the election, you would think that things would move up and down. The firing of Comey, right? There's a little bump there, uh, but not the kind of bump that you'd expect given a major event. And I think, I don't say that the public opinion is immune to movement. There are some movements that I think can be explained by how Democrats and Republicans are responding to events in the world. but I do think that things are different, not just on foreign policy, but in politics more general, that things look different. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very curious as someone with a, a stake in the economy, I want things to, to go well. Uh, as a political scientist, I'd be really curious to see what happens in response to an economic shock. Are things so deeply dug that even big economic movements wouldn't move public opinion, support for the president like we thought. But I mean, the fact that I'm asking that question, I, I guess is really tacit support for you know what you said, that even moderately big foreign policy events are not going to move public opinion in the ways that we would expect. And as I said earlier, if you look at the whole scope of historic cases uh, of presidential approval, uh, support for war... You know, the rally around the flag effect is bigger in theory than in practice, right? That if we look at all the cases, it, you know, even at its biggest, on average, it's pretty small. And it's probably going to be even smaller today.
1: Adam Barinski, thank you very much.
2: Good. Thanks for having me. As
1: I close the show today, I want to talk for a minute about. What we've been seeing in the negotiations or non-negotiations between Pelosi and McConnell, because they illuminate what has been the central theme of this show. Um, I was joking with Professor Brinsky before we talked. Uh, he, we were talking about polarization, and I was saying that this is an impeachment podcast, but in truth, it's been a podcast about political polarization and how the system works in It, it doesn't sound like a funny joke, because in most ways I'm not a funny person, but it is true. And I think you're seeing one of the dimensions of it now, I think Pelosi probably should have held the impeachment proceedings open in the House for longer. But in part, what she is dealing with is a problem that would never have had a solution, which is simply this. How can you have a true impeachment proceeding if one party that controls a key part of the process does not want to participate? Like, what do you do? And the answer is there's nothing you can do just as the other political party. I've said this a bunch of different times, but the American political system, particularly in these periods of extreme stress, periods where you're dealing with something like impeachment, the only way it functions is with two parties that want to participate, that are willing to play the infinite game of keeping American politics healthy, as opposed to the finite game of trying to win the next election. We can argue back and forth about how often that has ever been true in American politics, but it has been more true at other times than it is today. Certainly during Nixon, it was a lot more true. And so what you're seeing with McConnell is pretty simple and has been thrown into quite stark relief. He and the Republicans do not want to know more. They just don't. They mocked and attacked and dismissed the House process as unfair as not a true effort to get to the truth. And now that it is over, and I think this is what is so telling, they've not said, well, you know what, having watched that. We don't think it was good enough. That's why we kept criticizing it. So given our power in the Senate, we're going to do what they didn't and get even closer to the truth. We're going to call witnesses. We're going to make sure John Bolton testifies. We have a reputation for fairness to the Republicans who might testify. And so we think we get information they didn't because everybody knows that Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi will not treat you fairly. You could have had a partisan argument for a true Senate process but that's not what they've said. Marco Rubio had a very strange tweet where he said that our job in the Senate is only to consider what the House found, only to consider what the House found. If there's new information, we shouldn't even know it. Certainly there's been no enthusiasm among Mitch McConnell and his key leadership for the fact that John Bolton will talk to them. There's clearly information and as I said at the top, I don't expect John Bolton to be some witness that destroys a Trump presidency, but there's clearly information that he has, but they don't want to know it. They don't want to know it because it might make it harder for them to not run a true process when that is their goal. And so there's a real tell here. But the problem is, what can you do with that tell? If you have one side of this that does not want to participate, what do you do with it? Um, The key takeaway from my conversation with Berensky, and this was about matters of war, um, so this is about matters that have a lot more external reality in a way than something like impeachment. The key takeaway from that conversation was that most people when they're evaluating politics, if they're in any way politically engaged, they evaluate it through the prism of elite cues on their side. It is helpful to them, and this goes back to my stealth democracy comments from the last episode of this podcast, it is helpful to them if people on both sides seem to agree because that suggests this is just true. Whether or not it is true is a different question, but it, 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 it that's how it's taken. But for the exact same reasons, it's very hard to get any kind of unanimity or bipartisan support for a war or a conflict if there is not pre-existing bipartisan support for it. It is even harder for impeachment. And so one of the great realizations of an era of polarization is how much people are following the cues of party leaders. And if party leaders are not ever gonna give a cue that something is worth a bipartisan uh, consensus, then it will never get one because the way that reasoning is done is not people of both parties or all parties starting from first principles looking at the facts before them and coming to a conclusion. The way that reasoning is done is people looking at the people they already trust in politics, assuming that they are going to implement their values cleanly and clearly and following what they do. And so if you are never going to get that kind of bipartisan cooperation, you're never going to get that kind of bipartisan support. And if you're never going to get that bipartisan support, then On the one hand, you won't have it when you want it for something like war in Donald Trump's case. But on the other hand, you also will not have it when you need it for something like impeachment in the House's case. And as has been the truth for so much of this process, what is very clear is that this is not a question that has an answer. There isn't a clever political strategy here. It's just a problem. And it's a problem we don't currently know how to solve. That is impeachment explained this week take this moment quickly to note that I have a book coming out called Why We're Polarized. If I look at a lot of issues through the lens of the prism of polarization, it's because I do think it is a master story of American politics right now. And Why We're Polarized is coming out in a couple weeks. And if you want to pre-order it or join me on tour, um, you can do that at whywe'repolarized.com or ezrakline.com. But if you've been interested in the meta political question that is animated this podcast, I think that book is going to have a lot of value for you. So that is Why We're Polarized at whywe'repolarized.com. As always, thank you for joining us on this podcast, uh, Impeachment Explained. I'm your host, Ezra Klein. It is produced and edited by Jeffrey Geld, researched by Roger Karma. Our engineers are Tova Ruth and Cynthia Gill. Our theme music is by John Natchez, and our executive producer is Liz Nelson. Impeachment Explained is Vox Media podcast production.